Welcome to Fusion. We're so glad that you're joining us here in person as well as those of you joining us online. Welcome. On this third Sunday of Advent, we light the candle of joy, remembering the words of Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
I invite you to stand and worship with us. Fields and floods, waxing. 
Welcome to worship today. It's a great day to be here and to be worshiping together. And I'm uh, Andrew Gorder, and I'm on the, on the council this year and grateful to serve in that way. And uh, this time of the year, we just want to bring you up to date on where we are with finishing the year. And these last months of the weeks of the year, sorry, are always a little bit interesting because we get a really good idea over these weeks from November on how we're going to finish and kind of how the giving patterns have been. So the 21 budget projected a weekly need of about 29,900 over the whole year. Well, coming into November, that number changed in terms of the remaining weeks. And from about mid-November on, we needed about 45,850. Well, now we're just a few weeks before the end of the year, and we need a total of 198,849. So that divides into about 66,000 plus per week. So this is just an encouragement here to uh, us coming together and partnering together to finish the year well and to start 2022 in good shape. Of course, it's been a tough year and none of us uh, can avoid that reality with the pandemic and the ups and downs and economically and all of that, which is certainly part of this whole conversation. But above that, we're just asking that you recognize our partnership together in this and really in faith believe that we can do this. And so our request is for you to consider what additional gift you can contribute this year to finish the year well. And again, want you to hear very clearly, thank you for your partnership in all of this. Uh, we are together. Ministry is great through Heart of White Ministries, and we trust the Lord that he will bless and lead us in this. So, Merry Christmas. May the Lord bless you, and let's continue worshiping. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Mm -hmm. I know uh, all of our council members were just dying to make that announcement. Those are the favorite one to make, but, but in all seriousness, um, this is a partnership, and uh, God is good. Um, God has continued to been good. This, this is across campus, 
And uh, this church has been incredibly generous and faithful, and so let's continue to live into that legacy and testimony. I just wanted to share one of the things, you know, we meet for staff every Wednesday, and um, uh, Jen with Neighbors Plus shared that last weekend was the, the, the Hope Christmas store. Uh, which is a chance where members of our community come and are able to pick out a gift, uh, something that they may otherwise not have been able to, to be able to select and enjoy. And, and over 200 kids came through our doors and uh, got to select a, a gift that just blessed them this Christmas season. And so things like that are happening uh, across this campus. And, and I've been here like eight months, and I'm still learning uh, the, the vast array of, of ministries. In fact, we were, we were, we were meeting with um, a local partner, um, a local community member, and just sharing some of the things that happen on Hardaway's campus. And uh, they said it this way. They said, boy, it, it really seems that Hardaway is, is a hub in this community. And I thought, yeah. Uh, Hardaway is a hub, and I'm learning that, and that is a, a huge, amazing gift that we can offer to our community. I'm, I'm, I'm going on and on, and the kids are like, let's go to Sunday school. And so I'm going to dismiss the kids to head to Sunday school and, uh, and uh, children's worship for uh, this morning. Uh, also, if you'd like to come back this, this evening, uh, 5.30, we have a song and uh, song and scripture service, and so it's going to be all those favorite uh, Christmas classics. Uh, not a potluck, but after the service, there'll be cookies and milk for a time of fellowship reception. So come back and enjoy uh, some of those songs that move in our hearts and our souls. And uh, with that, let's, let's go to our God in prayer. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, on this third Sunday of Advent, when we fix our hearts on this gift of of joy, Lord, we listen to the words of your psalmist, Psalm 126, who writes, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev desert. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this psalm of, of remembered hope. Lord, a, a psalm that remembers when, Lord, your people returned from exile. Lord, living in a land that was not their own. Living in a, as a, in a land as foreigners with, without a home, without, without the temple of the Lord. And, and Lord, in a moment, suddenly they were able to return to Israel. Lord, they remember just the joy that they experienced from returning from exile. Lord, as we, we remember and just imagine, Lord, what that kind of experience would be like journeying for miles back home and the joy and the laughter that would just burst out. Lord, we also recognize that for many, Lord, exile feels like a reality today. 
And so, Lord, we pray for those in our world, we pray for those in our nation who, who feel a season of exile in, a, in, in just a visceral way, Lord. We think of those south of us in Kentucky and those border states, Lord, whose lives have literally just been turned upside down because of a storm, a tornado that destroyed multiple cities. God, we pray that you would restore hope and joy We continue, Lord, to pray for the Oxford community on the other side of the state, Lord, for for other communities that have been ravaged by by tragedy and just horrendous circumstances. God, we pray that you would restore joy and hope. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for for those who are are suffering in, in ways that we can only imagine. We continue, Lord, to be mindful of missionaries who are still held captive in Haiti and some were released a few days ago, but Lord, we pray for you and your powerful hand to restore hope and joy. And Lord, right here in our own church community, Lord, we remembered the life of one of our own on Friday, Jerry. God, we continue to pray for Shelly and for Brandon, Sebastian, for others, Lord, who who are feeling the weight of loss and the reality of exile, Lord, continues to sting in a very tangible way. And we pray, Lord, that you would restore hope and joy. Lord, we, we pray this because we know, God, you are powerful. We know that you are a God who is living and active. And, and Lord, you are the one who can bring your people home from exile. Lord, you are the one who can give us hope and, yes, even joy. Lord, when our hearts and our experience is filled with grief and loss and wondering what the future would hold, we pray, God, that you would restore our fortunes Oh Lord, like streams in the desert. Lord, as we sow tears that, Lord, you would reap songs of joy. Lord, this psalm is such a psalm of hope and restoration. And we pray, God, that you would restore that joy into our lives. And Lord, what we know is that joy does not come from our circumstances. Joy does does not come from the seasons in life that we live in. But Lord, our joy comes from the truth that we remember today. That a Savior has been born. That joy has entered into this brokenness. And so Lord, may we find just glimpses of joy today. And Lord, if it be your will and your pleasure, Lord, may it be a waterfall of joy. Because we know Jesus Christ. A Savior who has come to restore and redeem what has been broken in this world. And so, God, we pray for healing. We pray, Lord, for provision. We pray, Lord, for reconciliation. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us once again of where our joy comes from. In Christ the Lord. And it's in his name that we pray all these things and God's people say together, amen. Amen. Hey, good morning, once again, Fusion family. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be together. Third Sunday of Advent, as you've heard multiple times, it is uh, third Sunday as we light the joy candle, the, 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 the pink candle in the Advent wreath. I'm Pastor JB, as I try to say every week. If we haven't met yet, I'd love that opportunity to meet and connect. Um, I was just, we were just singing the, oh, one of those songs there, and 
Uh, when I think about joy, um, one of the things I think about is, is children. Um, I, I was looking over at my son and, and he's looking at me and he's looking at my foot and he's trying to like tap with the foot. There's, there's something about joy that, that children bring. Um, and for our kids, like music is one of those things uh, that just brings joy. When you find those songs that kind of just resonate in your heart, um, they bring joy. And I don't know about you, but maybe grandkids or kids, they find that song and they, they want to hear that song, not once, not twice, but over and over. And so right now, our house, it, there's a certain song by the band Skillet, and that song is playing constantly. So, and then they're like all rocking out. Anyway, joy. But anyway, this morning we continue our Advent series, Genealogy of Hope. We've been camped out in this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, verses 1, 1 through 17. Last week we, we looked at some of the differences uh, between ancient genealogies and what we would call ancestry today. Ancient genealogies are trying to communicate something more uh, about the person that they're referencing. Genealogies in the ancient world were, were like your set of credentials, like why were you worth talking about, right? And so when Matthew writes this genealogy of Jesus, he's trying to say something more than just uh, marking out a precise family tree. Now last week I, I hinted at this, we talked a little bit about this, uh, but for ancient Jewish, Jewish audience, right, the ancient Jewish audience this is a patriarchal world, right, uh, male-dominated society, there are some names that would have been curious additions in the genealogy. I mentioned this last week, Matthew includes five women uh, in Jesus' genealogy. Five, if you include Mary. Uh, but that would have been strange. So that would have been strange for him to mention women in the genealogy uh, because you trace genealogy through the Father's line. But what would have been even beyond strange is the women Matthew chooses to include in that genealogy. Writing this genealogy, the women you maybe would assume would be in the genealogy would be some of the matriarchs, like, like Sarah or Rebecca, Leah, um, Rachel, right? But instead, Matthew includes four women, not including Mary, at the beginning of the genealogy, and those women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, though not saying Bathsheba, but Uriah's wife, but of course, meaning Bathsheba. Now, last week, we remembered how Matthew does, Matthew does, does not include every father's name, right? He, he doesn't have to include every person's name in the genealogy. So why would he include women, and why would he include these women specifically? Now, there's a couple different layers to explore with these four women mentioned in the genealogy. We're going to take two weeks to explore those two layers. This week, what I want to focus on is this kind of unique, strange, curious fact that all of these four women— uh, scholars believe we're, we're Gentile. Now that's interesting. Now, of course, the exception is Bathsheba. She was not a Gentile, but Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. And so she's married to a Gentile. Now that is just a curious uh, set of facts that these are Gentile women. Let's read, let's dive in once again to the genealogy. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 and then skip down to verse 16 uh, to kind of read the genealogy and remember these four women. If you're willing and able, I just invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us and honor God as we hear him speak to us through his word. Once again, Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 1. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Then jumping down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, that even in this retelling of, of a genealogy, for many of us, Lord, it just seems like a list of names with, with little significance. And yet, Lord, by your spirit, you've been unve- unveiling and revealing truth of who you are, of who Jesus is. And Lord, we pray that that truth would continue to speak into our hearts today and make an impact in our lives both today and tomorrow. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Quick question. Have, have you ever been in a situation where you felt completely out of place? Just felt like an outsider? Just felt like, I don't belong here. Maybe, maybe you can think of a time in your life. You know, I was considering this question because we're, we're talking about outsiders this morning and considering this question this week, realizing that to be, if I'm honest with myself, I rarely, I rarely find myself in that spot. Most of the time, I am in situations and places where I, where I feel quite comfortable I feel pretty well at home around people I know and like. I, I, I was just thinking about my life. I mostly dwell in circles of comfort. Uh, even, even starting at a new church, and, and if you've never started at a new church, that, that can be a really intimidating thing, uh, right? It can be a really intimidating thing to step into a, a, a faith community that's not your home, and uh, some of you have done that. Uh, but for us, like, I'm the pastor, so... You at least know who I am, and, and so then and you're like, well, we want to make the pastor feel nice, you know, so, so we at least get a warm welcome, like that's just a natural thing. So even, even stepping into this community, which, you know, has challenges and we got to learn a community, but, but, but it hasn't felt like totally out of place. You've made us feel very welcome. And so I was just thinking, like, I don't have many situations where I feel like an outsider, so I was just thinking, like, when was, not the last time, but when was one of those times? And for me, one of those times was the summer of 2016. I had the opportunity to travel to Europe with my two brothers. We were trying to be funny. So it was like the your bro vacation or the brocation or I don't know, hashtag we're getting old. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my, and the reason we, had, we were able to take this trip is my younger brother, Corey, uh, was living in Geneva, Switzerland with his wife, Kelly. 
They were there because of her job that brought her over there. Um, and so he kind of was, you know, he was saying that he was her trophy husband and he would go to the market and make dinner anyway. But it gave him a ton of freedom and we had a young a child, so Yvonne was not able to go. I still owe her big time on that one, so hold me to that. Uh, but she graciously said, no, you need to go and do this trip with your brothers. And so we, we had this amazing opportunity and we were trying to figure out what kind of trip would we do. And he had some friends who did this trip and it was Amsterdam and then Paris and then Geneva. And so that was the plan. We're going to fly into Amsterdam, uh, the motherland, right? So we're going to fly into Amsterdam and uh, then take trains to Paris and then uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And so my brother and I get, go to O'Hare Airport. We get on the plane. Uh, we travel for how many hours? Stop in Iceland. Uh, from Iceland, we stop at in, in, in Amsterdam. Land in Amsterdam. It's, it's, it's the morning in Amsterdam. We get off the plane. Uh, by the way, we don't have cell service because my brother lives there. So we're going we're gonna to depend on his cell phone to get us around Europe. So we don't have cell phone service. I don't know any Dutch, so I don't know any of the language. So I get out of the airplane, and I'm in the airport, and I'm just looking around, and I, don't, I can't read any of the signs. And all I know is I got to get on a train, buy a train ticket, and get to downtown Amsterdam. And we're walking around, and I just got to tell you, like, I just haven't had this experience all that much. And I'm just like, I just feel lost, and I don't know where to go. And I'm looking at all these signs. It, it means nothing to me. I'm trying to discern pictures. And it was just disorienting. It was, it was confusing. I, I felt alone and lost. And my anxiety started welling up in me. And then finally we found an information table, talked to the person. They knew English, were able to get us to the, trains, the train ticket counter, got on a train, made it to Amsterdam, had a wonderful time. But for that moment, and and. It was just like 10 minutes. I mean, it wasn't even that long, but for that moment, I felt like an outsider. Like I was in a place that I did not belong. I did not know how to navigate. And I just got to be honest with you, I didn't like it at all. I didn't like that feeling at all. Which brings us to the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. Because these four women mentioned in these first six verses, they're all outsiders in their own regard. First of all, they're, they're women in a male-dominated society, uh, so that makes it just difficult to navigate, uh, particularly on your own, impossible to navigate on your own. And then also, as we mentioned, they're, they're Gentiles, and they're Gentiles in this Jewish ancestry, which would have been like a stain on their name, right? What a curious addition uh, to Matthew's genealogy, and it begs the question, why? Why are these four women mentioned in this genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah? That's the question for us this morning. Uh, to get after this first layer, we're, we're going to look at one of those four women. Uh, her name is Ruth. And so remember with me uh, the, the story of Ruth, an outsider. Of the four women mentioned, Ruth kind of stands out. Ruth stands out because uh, she's the least scandalous of the four women. We're going to talk a little bit about the scandal next week. Uh, but the scriptures uh, highlight, in fact, Ruth's character. Like one of the things we know about Ruth, one of the things that's celebrated about Ruth is her loyalty and her love, particularly for her mother-in-law, Naomi. But the scripture also tells us that she was from Moab. She was a Moabite woman. And so real quickly, let's just remember the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth's story, she's 
a couple different things. A societal outsider, and you see some of those things that, that put her in that category. She's coming from a position of weakness, right, and vulnerability uh, in that, that center uh, uh, category. And then also this admirable character character. Let's talk about each of those things by retelling this story of Ruth. The book of Ruth comes after the book of Judges. We're told that the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges, which would have been a difficult time in Israel's past. They're longing for a king, but a king hasn't come yet. And the, booth, bu- the book of Ruth opens this way. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says this, in the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, which means um, God is king, and his wife's name was Naomi. So the story is we have, we have Naomi and Elimelech moved to Bethlehem. By the way, do you know what Bethlehem means? Uh, uh, Beit is house, Lechem is bread, house of bread. So there's just kind of some irony here. They're, they're leaving Bethlehem, which means house of bread because there's a famine, there's no bread, right? And so they're leaving Bethlehem and they head to the land of Moab, which is on the other side of the Dead Sea. This is Gentile territory. This is the land of their enemy. And they go there with their two sons to flee this famine. When they get to Moab, uh, a short time later, uh, Elimelech dies, and, and Naomi's sons marry women from Moab, Ruth and Orpah. Now, a little bit of background. Moab uh, is a longtime enemy of Israel, descendants of Abraham's brother Lot. There's a sketchy story there we won't get into. Uh, and they settle this region opposite the Dead Sea. And this is a region where the people of God actually waited to enter the promised land. You can read about the region of Moab in Numbers 22 through 26. There's this story of of King Balak and Balaam, this pagan prophet who's commanded to, to, to prophesy curses over the people of God. But he says, no, I can't because God has blessed them. Numbers 22 through 26. Uh, But in the book of Numbers, Moses is buried in Moab. Uh, And then we get into the book of Deuteronomy. Here's one of the laws just to kind of highlight how the Jewish people thought of the Moabites. Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 says this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. All that is to say is that the Moabites were enemies of Israel. These are not only Gentiles, uh, but they are enemies of the people of God. And that's where Elimelech and Naomi move with their sons, and then their sons marry Moabite women. Now after 10 years, Naomi's two sons who have married these Moabite women, they die, leaving Naomi without her sons, Naomi without her husband, living in a land that is not her own uh, and decides, therefore decides to return to her homeland where her family lives in Bethlehem. And she urges her daughters-in-law to stay in their homeland of Moab, saying, I have nothing I, have nothing I can give you. Stay here in your homeland. Return to your families. They will take care of you. Don't come with me. And, and Orpah obliges. She says, okay, she returns home. But we know the story. Ruth says, no. I'm staying with you. Ruth, in fact, uh, says these words, maybe some of the more well-known words in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter one, verse six. Ruth refuses to leave and speaks this famous line, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. 
And so Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem. When Naomi and Ruth return, they, they, they get to Bethlehem and some of the women in the town see Naomi. They kind of recognize her. Is that you, Naomi? And Naomi says, no, no, no. Don't call me Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. It says, call me Mara, which means bitter because the Lord has taken everything. I am empty. I have nothing left. Call me bitter. Don't even call me by my name. They're on the outside. Naomi's returning home, but she's returning home on the outside. Returning home with a a woman, a a daughter-in-law who is a Gentile, who is a Moabite. Returning home as a woman who's lost absolutely everything, her sons, her husband. She's in a desperate situation, vulnerable and poor, dependent on others' mercies. In fact, she returns during the harvest and for Ruth and Naomi to survive, they have to glean the leftover grain from the surrounding fields. They've lost everything. Here's a detail. Ruth and Naomi are outsiders, but they're outsiders from a position of weakness. And that makes a difference. Because I'm guessing that some of us have maybe been outsiders, but in a, in a position of confidence and strength. Uh, here's an here's illustration. At a, at a sporting event, have you ever been to an away game? Right? You're an outsider, right? But, but you're, you're in, a, in a, I mean, you're in a place of security and confidence. I remember being a Packer fan, going to Cleveland. No, there's no Cleveland Brown fans here, right? Okay. Okay. Sorry, Jenny. Apologize. But the Browns were not very good that time <laughs> when we went. And so it's like I'm coming in as an outsider and I'm getting all kinds of names called, but I'm like coming from a position of strength. It's like, yeah, yeah, Packers, you know, like that's different than not knowing the language in the Amsterdam airport, not having a cell phone, not having a means. Being vul- There's a difference there, being an outsider and being vulnerable versus being an outsider and being in a position of strength. Naomi and Ruth are coming back to her home but in a position of extreme vulnerability and desperation. And all they have in this moment is each other. We're going to talk about that in a little bit but here's the question for us. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever found yourself in in desperate circumstances? Broken, vulnerable. Have you ever felt like an outsider where where you, you step into a situation or a season and you just feel left out? You feel like as one without a home. You feel alone and lost. You feel like you don't belong. Like someone wandering around in a foreign airport. It's disorienting. It's scary. It's anxiety producing. Or maybe for you, you've, you've experienced rejection. Maybe rejection from, from someone you love. Maybe rejection from a group of people that you don't know all that much and they make you feel less than. They, they belittle you. Maybe it's because of your background. You came from the wrong family or the wrong ethnicity. Maybe, maybe you're, <laughs> you're rejected because you didn't meet certain social or economic standards and you just, you just feel that difference in being on the outside. Or maybe you, like Naomi, have, have just experienced loss. 
and brokenness that's hard to even put into words. Life has gone from, from pleasant to bitter because you've lost so much. And now because of that grief and that, that loss, you, you're not sure of how you fit in anymore. How do you fit in those friend groups when someone you love is no longer with you? How do you, how do you interact with people when you wonder how they are thinking of how they can interact with you? And Have you ever felt like the outsider? Have you ever felt desperate, and broken, and vulnerable? Friends, if you've been there, here's the good news this morning. Ruth, broken, outsider. She is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Matthew is telling us that there is a place for the outsider. There is a place for the broken in the family of God. And it's not simply, Matthew's not simply telling that through a genealogy. He is. He certainly is. But he goes on to confirm that truth in the life, ministry, and example of Jesus Christ himself in his gospel. Because Jesus Christ was one who welcomed the outsider in. You see, ever since sin entered God's good world, our good God has been at work to redeem and restore what has been broken, especially us broken sinners who messed it all up in the first place. First, he does this through a chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, blessed to bless the nations. But finally, he does this through sending his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it's through Jesus, God's gracious covenant has been extended to Jew and Gentile, to all nations, right? Remember this in our summer series of the book of Acts. And we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. A quick survey of just Matthew's gospel. There's other examples in the other, other Gospels, but just let's look quickly at Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, who visits from the east? Magi. These are not Jewish people, right? These are people from the outside, but they're present at the birth of the Savior. Matthew 2. Jumping ahead, Matthew 8, there's this, this string of stories immediately after the Sermon on the Mount there's this testimony of in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13, there's a Roman centurion Right, not a Jew, right? A Roman centurion whose servant is sick. He pleads with Jesus to heal his servant. He says, I have those under me. Just say the word and I know you will heal this servant. And Jesus praises this Roman centurion's faith over others. Fast forward, some things happen, right? Matthew 8. Uh, in this is the testimony of Jesus jumping on a boat with his disciples. He falls asleep in the bow of the boat. A storm comes up and he calms the storm. You remember that? Why did he get in the boat? He made one stop on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the, the Gerasenes, a Gentile region. He made one stop, got in that boat, went through a storm to make one stop. Immediately after that, he heads right back to Capernaum, right? But he makes this one stop in Gentile territory to cast out a de demons, a legion of demons in a Gentile man so that this man would testify to the Gentiles of that region that there is someone different. His name is Jesus and he has come. 
Fast forward to Matthew 15. There's a healing of this Canaanite woman. There's some disturbing things that happen there, but the point is that Jesus heals this woman and praises her faith as well. For the broken, do you remember Matthew 11? What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus making space for the broken. And then finally, the last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is what we call the Great Commission. He says this to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's a new covenant that is welcoming of all nations and all peoples. The gospel of grace is good news for all because Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, came to save all nations, all people who had come to believe. What Jesus lived and taught in the gospels then is made explicit in the New Testament. Quickly, gospel made explicit in the New Testament. You remember just a few months ago, a couple months ago, Who Are We series. We studied six weeks in Ephesians uh, chapter two. We looked at this passage, but we considered in this series, we talked about the dividing wall of hostility, right? That everyone, our vision is for everyone. This dividing wall of hostility has come down. The worldly categories that keep people at odds has come down in Christ Jesus. Multiple times in Paul's letters, he says there's no longer Jew or Gentile. Ethnic divisions, torn down. Slave or free. Economic divisions, torn down. Male or female, torn down. Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.23. And then these words in Ephesians 2, talking about this Jew and Gentile, that dividing wall of hostility has come down. Paul writes this, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, no longer Jew and Gentile, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. In Christ's death on the cross, that dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed along with sin and death. He put to death their hostility, Paul writes, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, he writes, you are no longer foreigners, strangers. You are no longer outsiders, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. No longer strangers, foreigners, or outsiders, but members of the household, the family of God. God. This is good news. Amen? (laughs) In fact, even the simplest passage that many of us committed to memory at a young age, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ has made a place for you and you and you and me a place for the outsider, a place for the brokenhearted, the weary in the family of God. You need to hear this truth. You need to know this truth. You need to believe this truth even when it's hard to believe or experience. Be reminded of that truth today. It's good news. Let's go another layer. What's the implication? What's the implication of this good news that God has welcomed us, outsiders, into his family? The implication for those who call ourselves Christ's disciples, the call to the church of Jesus Christ, 
is a call to hospitality. A call to hospitality. A simple word to say, not always an easy thing to live into. Since we've been welcomed by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are then called to welcome others in the same grace of Jesus Christ. And it's summed up in one word, hospitality. There's a Greek word used in passages like Romans 12, which Paul uses to sum up this word, this big word, love. One of the things he says is practice hospitality. Hebrews 13 Practice hospitality, right, by hosting strangers because you may, without even knowing it, host, be hosting angels without even knowing it, right? Hebrews 13, that's the word hospitality. Not only that, in, uh, in two different lists of qualifications for overseers, elders, deacons, leaders in the church, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, one of the things that Paul says is practice hospitality. Quick word study, the word hospitality is, is the Greek word philozenos. You want to say that? Philozenos. It's a compound word in the Greek. Two Greek words. The first Greek word is philo. Maybe you've heard that one before. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Philo means love. It is, a, is an affectionate kind of love, a love for a dear friend or companion. Philo. The second word is xenos. Maybe you've heard that word in the, in the word xenophobia. Xenos means stranger or foreigner or outsider. Xenophobia is the fear of outsiders. Philoxenos is the exact opposite. It is the love of the stranger, love for the stranger. It is to love, to take a stranger into your life as a friend. Hospitality. It literally means love for the stranger. Christ has welcomed us, strangers, outsiders, into his life. May we do the same. May we as the church of Jesus Christ love and welcome others, even maybe especially the outsider, the outcast, the ostracized. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus to love and may we grow in this practice as a church. And here's what it looks like. As, at, at my prayer for us as, as Fusion, as Heart Awake as a whole, that we would be those who practice radical hospitality. And do you know what practicing radical hospitality is going to require? It's going to require us kind of getting over ourselves a little bit. Because particularly in like a system like, like Heart Awake, you know, we got three worshiping bodies. Um, it can be a challenge because we don't always, we don't always know who's from what community and so to practice radical hospitality is you see some of you like, hey, welcome to Hardaway. And you know what's might be going to happen? They're going to be like, I've been a member here for like 20 years, <laughs> you know. But then their response would be like, but you know what? Thank you for welcoming me. Like have some grace in that. Have some fun. Like, like welcome people. I, my hope is that you've been here for 20 years and someone's like, hey, welcome. What's your name, you know. My, my hope is that that happens so that we welcome those who've been here. We welcome people who haven't been here ever before, but we would be a community that practices radical hospitality because the truth is to step into a community is a really intimidating thing. And if someone has taken that step to walk through those doors, has brought the courage to walk through those doors and to sit in one of these chairs and they've come for the first time, that has taken an incredible amount of courage. It is an intimidating thing. 
And my prayer is that when that person comes, they would be surrounded by the community of faith, like, hey, how's it going? This is my name, what's your name? That we'd be a community that practices radical hospitality. Because here's the thing. Maybe it's a secret. When we do, when we practice radical hospitality, when we live into the example of Christ's love and this gospel of grace, do you want to know what's waiting on the other side? Joy. There's joy waiting on the other side. There's joy that comes mutually in the community of faith when we do life together. As we wrap things up this morning, what I want to do is just return to the testimony of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem, empty, desperate. They've lost everything. Lost their husband. Lost their sons. They've lost their hope for survival. They are now completely dependent on the mercy of others. Naomi is so devoid of joy in this moment that she literally changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. But the one thing that Ruth and Naomi have in this testimony is they have each other. And can we just pause and just acknowledge what a strange pairing these two ladies are? First of all, you have a Jewish woman and a a Moabite woman. Now, we don't quite get how strange that is because we're in a different context and time. That is a strange pairing. You also have an older woman and a younger woman. Not so strange. But you also have a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. That's a little unique too. Maybe more unique for some than others. But they have each other and they have this bond of loyalty and love. But by God's grace, Ruth finds a distant relative of Naomi. His name is Boaz. He's a kinsman redeemer, right? This is part of Jewish law to take care of the widow and the orphan that if you lost your husband, a family relative would marry you and take care of you and your family. And so Boaz uh, agrees to take Ruth as his wife and in doing so redeems both Ruth and Naomi. And here is how the book of Ruth ends, chapter four, starting at verse 13. We read this, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women of the town of Bethlehem said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. As we close, just two things to notice in Ruth's and Naomi's story. The first thing is this, that God restored Naomi's joy in the context of relationship. In the context of this really unique and strange connection between Ruth and Naomi. Did you notice her friends when in, this, in chapter four, don't call her Mara? 
No, they give her her name, Naomi. They call her Naomi. Naomi has a son. Her name has been restored along with her joy have both returned. But it was only possible because these two women came together in loyal love. It only came through this unexpected relationship, right? Through a Moabite's devotion and love to her Hebrew mother-in-law and this Hebrew widow's embrace and companionship of her Moabite daughter-in-law. And through this odd union, God worked to bring something marvelous of redemption and restored joy. It was in the context of their relationship that joy returned. As I thought about that, it just made me, made me consider how God has worked in and through unique relationships in my life. And maybe you have, I'm, I'm willing to guess, guarantee that you have testimonies of how God worked and brought about mutual blessing and joy through unique relationships in your life as well. For us, just thinking about New neighbors, we just moved into a new neighborhood and neighbors who were strangers when we moved in have become friends. This is a little embarrassing, but willing to uh, send a little picture of the back door that someone left open all day. (laughs) Praise God for neighbors who are watching out for you though, right? I think about a mentoring relationship. Someone I met, he's a young boy and now their family has just become more like family to our family. I think about this ministry that we're looking to kick off this coming January, Faith Friends, where adults come alongside, you know, to bless our children. Do you think you're gonna be blessed in that engagement? You better believe it. You better believe it. I think of a church that comes alongside, embraces a family through tough circumstances, and lives are changed and lives are changed in the community. Are these, can these things be messy? Can they be hard? Yes, but is there joy? Oh yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing. Ultimately, joy was restored to Ruth and Naomi through the gift of a son. A son whose lineage followed would lead to King David, uh, whose lineage followed would lead to another son, born in Bethlehem, Christ the Messiah. It reminds us of the gospel good news that Naomi's joy in life was restored through the gift of a son, and friends, our joy, our life is restored through the gift of a son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who welcomes the outsider, who welcomes and embraces with open arms those who are hurting and broken and tired. Jesus Christ is the source of our joy and our hope and our peace. A son born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, a son who continues to minister and embrace and welcome the outsider today, a son, Jesus Christ, who will one day return to this earth to make all things new. This is our hope. He is our joy. He is our peace. He is the one that we look to even when our circumstances are difficult and trying. He is our joy. You join me as we pray to our loving God. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, 
Lord, we thank you for the life of Jesus Christ. We thank you for words from this gospel of Matthew, words like Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus, you say, come to me all who are weary and broken and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, we thank you for, for words from, from your holy scriptures that tell us that the dividing wall of hostility has come down. Lord, words that remind us that, Lord, even when we feel like the outsider, even when we feel broken and vulnerable and alone, Lord Jesus, the truth is you are there with open arms welcoming us in. And for some of us, Lord, this morning, I just pray that, that we would hear your voice in a tangible and moving way, that we would know that we are not alone, but we belong to you. Lord, for others of us, Lord, may we be challenged to live into this this call to hospitality, to recognize your gracious embrace so that we might turn our lives outward to others so that they might experience a glimpse of your love and grace and in experiencing that glimpse the Holy Spirit might move in their hearts and bring them to faith. Lord, we pray that this community, not just at Fusion, but Lord, across the hall in celebration, across the parking lot, at Watershed, Lord, that we would be a community that continues to live into this radical call of hospitality. We thank you, Lord, that there's a testimony in our community that, that this place is a hub for our community, that people come here and they, they, be, they can come to belong, they can come to find community and rest and, and hope. Lord, may we continue to live into that. May we be inspired by your spirit, by your love, by your grace, so that, Lord, joy would not be fleeting, but joy would be a response to your work in and through and among us. And so come, Lord, restore those fortunes to make us laugh and dream and be filled with a joy that comes from you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to stand and worship with us. So this song has a little bit different tune to the chorus than you might expect, so I want to start on that.
joy. He is our peace. He is our love. He is Christ, the Savior. As you go from here, receive God's blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. God's people say, amen. Let's enjoy some time of fellowship together.